Tuesday is March 24th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Anne Young. She's the Julianne Dorn Professor of Neurology at Harvard Mass General, where she's also Chief of the Neurology Service and Founder of and Scientific Director of MIND, which is an acronym for the Mass General Institute for Neurological Disease. Hi, Anne. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, hi, Anne. How are you? Hi. How are you? Around the room, we've got today uh, Charlie Wilson. Hello. And George Perry. Hello. Hi. Hi. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Uh, Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. How are you? And me. I'm your host, uh, Salma Karashi. So, Anne, your um, your functional model of the basal ganglia was was the synthesis of many strains of research from the 70s and 80s, and it, it became the driving force for, I guess the next generation of, of research in the field. So many many of us uh, have never known a world without that model. And um, so could you talk about some of the prevailing ideas in, in basal ganglia research in the period prior to 1990 and your vantage point as a clinician in the process of weaving all of these into a coherent whole? Sure. So um, I think <clears throat> when I was a resident in neurology, I saw a few movement disorder cases. I think I saw, you know, a handful of Parkinson's patients and one Huntington's patient when I was a resident. And I was kind of fascinated by just looking at them. And um, then when I was done with my residency, um, my husband and I, Jack, and I went and got jobs at the University of Michigan, and we didn't do any fellowship or any postdoc. So we um, had no training in movement disorders at all. And we went to the University of Michigan, and we uh, just got gutsy and put up a sign saying we were experts in movement disorders. And that was... based on our interest in movement disorders, not our expertise. But what was interesting about it is that having had no formal training, we didn't have any real preconceived notions about, you know, nobody had told us what these diseases were about other than what we decided to think about them and what we read in books. So um, we started just seeing lots of patients, the two of us, and we probably spent most of our time talking about how the descriptions of the patients in books didn't totally jibe with what we saw clinically. And um, so in books, it's was said that Parkinson's patients were too slow at everything that they did. And that in Huntington's disease, everything was kind of too fast. But we noticed that that wasn't the case at all. Uh, Parkinson's patients, when they get up to walk, they're slow to start walking. But once they get walking, they often start walking too fast and accelerate, if anything, and have trouble stopping. And when they tap their fingers, they tap their fingers and the amplitude starts out large, 
but then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and faster and faster, actually. And I can't imitate it. It's too fast for me to imitate. And um, I think both Jack and I, I mean, since we were married, we spent all our time just talking about this. So we'd go on walks every day and we'd be going, so what's going on? And... um, uh, we thought, well, everybody's thinking about it as being inhibition or loss of function. And we were going, well, maybe it isn't at all. Maybe it's just that it's a, you can't switch sets. You can't change from doing this thing that you're doing to doing a new thing. And that you can't stop what you're doing. You, you keep going. And uh, it's almost like a positive feedback loop for the thing you're doing. And then if you need to switch to a new activity, it's hard to make that shift. So you're not ready to do it. You can't change your behavioral set quickly. So then the prevailing, I mean, the prevailing models at the time were like uh, from the neurochemical standpoint not from the physiology standpoint but from the neurochemical standpoint were these Mickey Mouse uh, diagrams <laughs> which were like uh, little cartoons where where the nigra went to the striatum and the striatum went back to the nigra and that was the basal ganglia with the little cholinergic interneuron in between and then you could show the balance of cholinergic and dopamine and show the how those things would shift in Parkinson's. There was no neurons going out to the spinal cord. The cortex wasn't involved. The thalamus was ignored. All of the projection areas of the striatum were ignored except for the nigra. So we went and, you know, again, no formal training or anything. We were just reading stuff. And um, I would have to say that Jack was the big reader. I'm sort of dyslexic, so we would, the way we sort of split our work up was that he would do all the reading, and then he'd talk to me about what he read, and then we'd just schmooze. And um, and then uh, I was... Uh, relatively okay at conceptualizing things, even though I couldn't maybe read about it, but I could conceptualize the things fairly well. So we came up with, uh, he read all the physiology and the anatomy, and we said, well, we at least ought to put some of this in a model and see what happens, and then we could test it in rats. You know, we could build something and then test it. So our first grant was um, back in the early 80s where we wrote a grant uh, to the NIH, an R01, that had the entire sequence of what we thought this diagram should do. And um, I think we had 12 specific aims or something like that. I mean, something impossible, right? So we wrote the grant. The grant review came back. You know, these guys are nuts. They can't focus. It's way too ambitious. They don't know what they're talking about. And um, and it got next. 
But the interesting thing was that we had also put the same project in on a program project grant that was site visited. And then they actually got to ask us questions about it and stuff like that. And that was funded. So on one, it was completely next. And the other, we got funded. So we actually had the opportunity to to go in and lesion something. So we thought at first that the striatum was just doing a, a common calculation on things and uh, that it was going mostly to the medial globus pallidus and out to the thalamus and back to the cortex. But we did recognize that there was this little side pathway that went to the external pallidum and then to the subthalamic nucleus, but nobody knew the transmitter of the subthalamic nucleus at the time. And for that matter, they were just barely coming to grips with the fact that GABA was the transmitter of the pallidum. And in fact, one of the experiments we did was to actually show that the entopeduncular nucleus was GABAergic by lesioning the entopeduncular nucleus with kaonic acid and then um, measuring what happened in the thalamus to GABA uptake and GABA synthesis and all of that and GABA levels, and they were all down. And uh, and then the external pallidum, the McGears were working on that, had antibodies against GAD and showed that that was GABAergic. So now, the what we did, you want me to go into this detail? Yeah. Uh, so then what we did was we said, um, well, if, if the striatum is doing a common thing to everything, then if we lesion the striatum, then, and that's GABAergic, then GABA receptors should upregulate in all the projection areas. So that's what we did. We did that, and yeah, they all upregulated. And in fact, uh, you could even show that they upregulated in the pallidum and uh, the entopeduncular nucleus and the reticulata, and they even downregulated in the thalamus as if there was a double connection there. So then we said, okay, now everybody says dopamine's inhibitory except for Steve Katai and Charlie Wilson and those guys over in Lansing. They were saying, no, 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 dopamine, you never know what dopamine's going to do. Sometimes it's excitatory, sometimes it's inhibitory. It's a modulator. And we were going like, yeah, I don't know. And all the pharmacology data would say that it was mostly inhibitory, the way the pharmacology went. You know, when you manipulated the system, the enzymes and stuff. So then we lesioned the dopamine system, expecting that it was going to be a loss of inhibition to the striatum, and therefore it was going to be like overactivity of the, uh, we were going to lose inhibition, so the striatum is going to become overactive, and all the receptors should downregulate in the projection areas, right? So when we did that, lo and behold, it was like it didn't fit at all. It, the uh, medial globus pallidus and the reticulata 
they upregulated after the dopamine lesion and the lateral globus pallidus, or in the rodent, the globus pallidus, went way down, like you'd expect. So we're going like, that's weird. You know, dopamine's like acting kind of excitatory on the the pathway going to the reticulata and the interpeduncular nucleus, but it's like you lost inhibition on the other pathway. And I'm going, how does that work? And about the same time, Scott Young and George Ewell and a Chip Griffin and all those guys were starting to look at um, substance P and enkephalin. And it was like when you looked at the staining of the substance P and enkephalin, it was like they differentiated two different systems. The it was like the enkephalin system seemed to go to the pallidum, the lateral globus pallidus, and the substance P more to the reticulata and the interpeduncular nucleus. So then we said, well, geez, you know, maybe they're like totally different sets of neurons and they are differentially regulated. And um, these guys had done experiments, again, where those two pathways were differentially regulated. So we said, got to be two pathways involved here. And since the anatomy said that the lateral globus pallidus hooked to the subthalamic nucleus, it became critical that we knew what the subthalamic nucleus transmitter was. And there were stuff in the literature that said that it was inhibitory, and there were other experimenters who said it was excitatory, so it was like not, you know, there was no final conclusion. As is usually the case. Right. <laughs> so at, around that time, we were working on, I had worked on glutamate, and we decided to lesion the subthalamic nucleus and make some measurements, but even then you couldn't, glutamate was hard to, like, nail down. We got an antibody against glutamate itself that uh, Storm Matheson and those guys got. And then we stained the sections and the subthalamic nucleus lit up with the antibody in cats. We were doing this in cats because it had a nice big subthalamic nucleus. So then we say, okay, if it's glutamate, it's excitatory. That changes the whole sequence of these pathways coming in because one would be uh, double inhibition coming out and the other would be excitation and inhibition and uh, together they would be doing different things, the opposite on your output pathway, basically. So then we were at a meeting with uh, Malin DeLong and Filion and a bunch of monkey people in Manchester. uh, And we had this idea. Jack and I had already been thinking about these two different pathways. And they started showing us all the work that they had done in MPTP monkeys. And damned if those little uh, 
changes in the pallidum and in the nigra didn't fit perfectly with these two pathways. They were, and I, you know, I'm a little snotty about this. I, this is open to the public, right? But, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I said to Malin Long, you know, I said, you know, I think the reason your experiments are turning out that way, I said, do you know why this happens? And he said, I'm not sure. And I said, oh, I think I know why. And uh, uh, he didn't say much. Malin doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, it's interesting. He's a quiet guy. But uh, then he, uh, uh, then it became a pretty popular theory, you know. So uh, that's kind of how it came about. But it was mostly the patients who. The the other thing I should say about the other thing about the patients in this um, theory that was important for the theory was that. Um, how do you get Korea? And again, you Malin would say, Anne, you don't get Korea by lesioning the striatum. You know, in a monkey, if you lesion the striatum, you get dystonia, maybe, or nothing. You know, you're not going to get a big Korea form disorder. You know, so you can't just go in and lesion the whole striatum and get Korea. So then we were going like, well, but Huntington's, you get Korea. Um, lupus, you get Korea sometimes. Hypoxia, you get Korea sometimes. So what's going on? And then we thought that maybe that one of the... Th and, and the subthalamic nucleus is the one place in the brain that Malin said, you go in there and lesion the subthalamic nucleus, you will become hemiballistic. That's the one reliable place. And, you so know... Remind us what hemiballistic is. So, hemiballism is like the extreme chorea. So that uh, instead of just little movements that look like they're cortically driven, it's huge. Flinging movements of the limbs. And somebody who has a stroke of the subthalamic nucleus, that's what they look like. They throwing their arms and their legs around, their faces contracting. And it's unilateral. And, and it's usually unilateral because yeah, it's why a stroke. it's called hemi. Yeah. And, uh, but it's one place that you can... And, and what happens to hemiballistic patients is that usually over several weeks to months, they slowly become choreic and not ballistic. So over a little time, it calms down and they become choreic. So we said, if that's the case, then uh, there's got to be some, these pathways have got to be differentially regulated, and maybe if only the cells that went to the lateral globus pallidus were affected, then that would have a functional change ultimately on the subthalamic nucleus, because the striatum would inhibit the lateral globus pallidus, and the lateral globus pallidus would in turn inhibit the subthalamic nucleus. So if you lost inhibition of the lateral globus pallidus because the striatal cells died, 
then the lateral globus pallidus would be overactive, right? It wouldn't be as inhibited. And it would functionally inhibit the subthalamic nucleus and be a functional lesion of it. And so the next experiment, sort of as we were thinking about this theory and before we, um, we, we published it first in movement disorders, actually. And um, then we came out with the TINS paper. And by the time we came out with the TINS paper, we had done all this work in Huntington's disease that would say that the encephalin cells were affected earliest. And then that would say, huh? See, so a subset of striatal neurons dies, the encephalin neurons die first, and you get choreic. Then as you start to develop more striatal pathology in the other neurons, the direct pathway is affected, and you lose your coordination, your um, direct pathway coordination. So, um, and that's what, the, the other thing is Huntington's patients weren't all too fast. They were really crummy at doing this, tapping your fingers. So tapping your fingers, they were really slow. So something had to be, it couldn't just, they were all too speedy, hyperkinetic or anything like that. They were actually pretty impaired on certain aspects of their motor function, but they then developed these extra movements. So it was a combination of studying um, in rats these uh, this little paradigm with lesions of the nigra and the cortex and the the various portions of the um, uh, globus pallidus that we came up with sort of uh, thinking about it and then I think what clinched it was then doing the human experiments in the Huntington's patients. That's what, that's how we came up with the thought. And we came over and talked with Charlie on a number of occasions over in Lansing. At least I once, I remember. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love the idea that in the in the 90s when you were talking about this, the 89 TINS paper in retrospective form, that you pointed out the fact that it's, the model's deficiencies were actually more important to you than its successes. Right. And I love that idea that, that a model has its greatest utility to a field when it fails. And when yeah. It sort of pushes the next level of analysis. Right. So I was hoping some of you guys could say something about that in your experience, in your fields. It's the best thing that to happen is when somebody else's model fails. <laughs> 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 And you get to fix it. Uh, then there's great progress. <laughs> That's why I thought it was especially generous that Anne was inviting people to have her to, to beat down her model. Yeah. Well, no, it's important to beat down the model because it gives you a framework, some kind of mental framework to test, and then you want to beat it up. And uh, I mean, in a sense, we did that with doing when we were lesioning the various parts. And we got to the dopamine cells, and the experiment turned out different than what we thought. Then we had to say, like, is there something wrong with the experiment, or is there something wrong with us? And it was something wrong with us. So the second best, after Dr. Wilson's first best, finding that somebody else is wrong, is finding <laughs> yourself wrong, because that's what scientific process, progress is based on. Yeah. Coming up with ideas that you can disprove. Yeah, yeah. And it's always been the things that, at least in my career, that have been unexpected 
that end up being the most interesting. You know, that if you don't pursue the unexpected experiment, then you're not doing yourself a favor. Because chances are then you're just working off somebody else's hypothesis. So I'd say one of the things about this particular model was its ability to organize everybody in the field's effort. So everybody got around this model. And some people are thinking it was wrong. Some people were thinking it was right. And some aspects of it were focused on by one group and another aspect by another. But there was nobody in the basal ganglia that wasn't working on this model in some way. Mm. And if you went to a basal ganglia, it's still true, actually. If you go to hear a basal ganglia talk, it's very likely that that box and arrow diagram will appear in the first couple of slides as an explanation of why I did the experiment I did. And so uh, so people people's experiments were uh, were uh, fertilized by this. I mean, just sort of organized the effort of the group. Before that model, I would say basal ganglia research was very disorganized. Everybody was going in a different direction. There was as yeah. many different ideas about it as there were people doing it, and there wasn't any theme to it. And there really wasn't a basal ganglia community of people who who argued and talked to each other about it. Everybody was, maybe I'm a motor control neurologist, yeah, yeah. or maybe I'm a human psychophysics of movement, or maybe I'm just studying the anatomy of the basal ganglia. And they didn't really think they had much in common. Right. But after that, it became possible for there to be something like International Basal Ganglia Society. There you go. Where you people go. Would, uh, would all talk to each other regardless of what they worked on. Yeah. And that happened about the same time as your paper. I mean, right. maybe it's a coincidence, but yeah. the timing is... Pretty good. Revealing. Yeah. Right. So to me, that—that's. I mean, I've always been on that, including from the time that Anne used to come visit, uh, a little bit on the skeptical side yeah. regarding this this model. It's healthy skepticism. <laughs> uh, healthy skepticism. Uh, even for the skeptic, the model organized your research and made it, gave you a direction to yeah. go. Yeah. But I th- still think there are a lot of unanswered questions, and so this. All the new technologies you see are now going to allow us to do experiments that we just weren't able to do before that you guys are doing. You know, with the optogenetics and these cage compounds and being able to go in and actually take populations of neurons and say, what happens if all the calretinin interneurons in the striatum all fire at once? You know what yeah. what happens? What a powerful thing that is to a model system. Yeah. You know, ultimately, that's going to tell us a lot. I think it'll it'll get us to the next level of discovery, and then there'll be other things that don't fit, right? And then we'll have to work on those. So most models are strictly in the used among scientists and argued out among scientists, but your model has made it into the general public. And even <laughs> into the into the clinic, to the point where I was uh, recently gave a talk in which I expressed uh, healthy skepticism about that about this model and describing it and explaining some of the data that I have. And afterwards there were people came to me and were upset that I might somehow harm this diagram. And one of the reasons is because without that, 
we're lost. <laughs> we don't know what to tell patients. We don't know what to do. And, and it's kind of true. I mean, I, some podcast recently I said, in the basal ganglia, we go straight from box and arrow diagram to clinical trial. And in some sense, it's kind of true. Yeah. We have gone straight from diagram to yes. clinical trial, skipping a lot of experiments in between. And sometimes we've got lucky. Right. And, and so because of that, this diagram becomes more than just a model. It yeah. starts to become the explanation for what we're doing to your Uncle Henry. Yes. And uh, right. so what about that? I mean, you, you see that in the... I do. In the clinic, I see that a lot. And it is a... Um, it's interesting. Patients do like to have something to hang their hat on. And you can't be too complicated for them, you know, when you start to say, well, it's really an integration and it's really plasticity. And then their eyes glaze over. And, but you can you know, convince them of something interesting. I think if you can say, you know, the brain is made of circuits and they interact together. In fact, you can draw models of it. This one goes up and this one goes down. down And and then you move too much. Right. Exactly. And, And doctors are trained in it because I think it helps with the pharmacology of um, treating patients. So when they think about this diagram, they often think more rationally about how they're using their drugs. But I also think, like you, I'm skeptical about it. I, I, I don't have a big vested interest. I, I'm proud that I came up with the little diagrams, but um, and I'm certainly excited by the fact that uh, Anatole Kreitzer and his group, you know, did those little experiments with the dopamine D1. You should say what those experiments mm-hmm. are. Oh, okay. So they, you'd have to explain it. I mean, they, the opto, the the rhodopsin is in either in the D2 neurons, and you can turn on all D2 neurons with lasers. So that should be the indirect pathway that goes to the right. segment of G2. Or you can turn on the D1s, and that's the direct pathway. And when you turn on the indirect pathway, and remember, it's when it's off that you get choreic. When it's on, the indirect pathway suppresses all unwanted movements. So the animal kind of like freaks and stops and does no unwanted movements at all. In fact, it kind of stops moving. And uh, then you shine the laser on the D1 animals, and the, that's the direct pathway. And again, if it's active, you think that the animal is going to be more effective in their motor behavior. You get better activity. You get better agility, more active movement than the control animal. And it fits It fits the model to the extent that, you know, you... you you know, on a superficial level. It's, it's totally what the model predicted yeah. should happen if you could do that experiment. Yes, experiment. exactly. Yeah. Right. And uh, so that was nice. But I, I still think it's it doesn't explain things like the dyskinesias and the Parkinson's disease. It doesn't explain dystonia. It doesn't explain tremor. It doesn't explain... The fact that when you see patients, like when you see that videotape of Michael J. Fox, there are points at which 
part of his body is writhing in dyskinesia, and the other part is shaking. And every different variable in between is happening to him. And so clearly, uh, there's somatotopy to the way it's all organized, which it, you know can fit with the model. That's all right. But um, it's also, I think, very plastic. And that the model takes no plasticity into account, takes no integration into account. It doesn't take timing into account. And that's why I think that if you... And it doesn't take into account where the convergence is in the, of the direct and indirect pathway. How do they converge on the medial globus pallidus and the reticulata? Do they converge onto the same neurons that the, for a particular motor function? Does the direct pathway come in and end on a set of palatal cells that the indirect pathway to suppress unwanted movements comes in onto the same cell? Or is it a surround, center surround inhibition? Uh, I don't think we know what that is, and I think you could use these tools to answer the question. And then, um, then the other issue is, what is the message that comes out of the pallidum into the thalamus? And if the bird song is right, it's a real message that's coming out of that uh, pallidum. It's not just a bunch of tick, 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 tick. You know, it's, this is Jesse Goldberg and Michael Fee's work. Right, right. A real message comes out of it. And, uh, and the exact be, timing of each spike really means something. Yes, exactly. Right. And it could As be. As opposed to, I, I mean, uh, one of the... That, that is really different from the old model because the older model was right. basically a rate model. Yes. And so you could just represent each output of each nucleus in the basal ganglia by a scalar number, which is what is the rate at this moment. Yeah. And things would be kind of in balance or out of balance or whatever. But in this case, it is uh, each neuron might be doing a different thing and the yep. exact timing of spikes really means something. Mm -hmm. And rate may actually not be right. part of the uh, story in that at that level yeah. at all. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that uh, the the other question that I keep wondering about is is uh, if birdsong is doing what it's doing in the basal ganglia, is the basal ganglia actually working as some sort of comparator? I mean, we talk about the cerebellum as being a good comparator, but I've never heard people talk about the direct and indirect pathway is actually coming together as a comparator at the end for the final output. Although that's basically what you had originally said. Yeah, sort of. Is that yeah. they are push, 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 pull. pull. Yeah. So, but it would be in one case. That <clears throat> right. Comes the question then: what sort of what's being compared in the two pathways? Well, you see, I would say that. Uh, if you had the birdsong analogy, you might say that it's the concept of the ideal motor or thought, because I think you can have the same thing for thinking. Uh, what's the ideal thought and what is the executed thought? 
So just like when the little birds are learning their song, it's not exact, and then they finally crystallize it. And then uh, if you don't have a basal ganglia, that's, that's good. It'll keep it crystallized forever. But if you have a basal ganglia, it's modifying it constantly. So if it's being modified constantly, what is it modifying to? And I would say, like, say you had a basketball player, like, you know, and you, you wish you were Michael Jordan and you could dribble down the Every court. San Antonio, you better come up with a... Oh, a better <laughs> San Antonio Spurs yeah. guy. Yeah, sorry. Ginobili. Uh, Ginobili. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you're saying, I want to be just like that person. I've got it in my mind what the perfect shot is. Boom. You know, and you throw the shot, and you're wrong. Well, the next time you do it, you're going to try to correct a little bit and get it closer to the perfect shot until you get as close as possible. And then your comparator, then your message out to the thalamus might actually be minuscule at that point because the difference is minimal. So, I, mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking. I, I like that idea. You like that idea? <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. Because it gives a lot of importance to dopamine cells. Yeah, yeah. just a correction signal then. And because dopamine cells are a sort of correction signal. They're, they're, they're the error function in any kind of learning model. Mm-hmm. So any kind of dynamic changes in dopamine cells are basically the teaching signal right. between your ideal movement and the actual executed movement. Yeah. And if you did it, well, you get more dopamine. If you do it not so well, you get less dopamine. Right, so, right. So I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Well, I I keep thinking that uh, certainly you you practice something. When, whenever you um, get up to, like, play tennis or something like that, you're always moving. You're never still. You're always kind of moving, setting you know, a tennis player is always sort of going back and forth. And they move before the serve so that they're ready to move faster. And they've got that the direct and indirect pathway have to be mobilized properly so that you get the the best uh, activation that you can get at the proper time. You can't be too inhibited and you can't be too loose. So you have to be somewhere in between, ready to shift your motor circuit. And I think you can practice that in your brain from the ideal motor circuit and then try to get that as close as possible. Is it true that you actually uh, advocated disinhibition at one point? An ex-postdoc of mine had a T-shirt that he claimed was a lab T-shirt and it said GABA and had a big red line through it. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bowling team or something like that. Well, we one year we had a bowling shirt. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was not the bowling shirt. Uh-huh. This was for a guy. The no GABA was for a guy that was in the lab. There were several people in my lab who had no GABA. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, <laughs> so, we, you know, it's like they did everything to the fullest. If they played basketball, they just threw themselves at the basket or if they were drinking they just drank themselves silly or you know whatever it is they did they did like a hundred percent there was no GABA you know so we just made up that t-shirt we should all be no GABA but the bowling shirt was it was when the 
neuroscience meeting was in uh, St. Louis, which is the bowling capital of the oh, world. Oh, it is? I didn't yeah. Know. And um, so instead of T-shirts, we made everybody bowling shirts, and we had receptor lanes. And uh, then we had the little bowling pins named different receptors and the transmitter coming down the lane. And we all had little names under the uh, over the pockets, you know. I was gutter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Various people had different different names for themselves. That was a good shirt, yeah. But yeah, we had a no gamba shirt. Yeah. It was legendary. I mean, Anne's lab was legendary for the I don't know. Wild parties, yes. The friendship of all the people that it was it was a legendary good place to work. Yeah. High quality workplace. Yeah. And I guess that that kind of went to to Boston with you. Yeah. The whole uh, on a much larger scale, that group at Boston has the same reputation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think people in general have a good time. Because that's what it's all about, right? I mean, science is to discover new things, but along the way you better be having a good time because what have you know, life can't be too serious. Yeah. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Anne Young. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>